I always like to just some personal interaction here at the beginning. Um, how many of you notice that each message is accompanied by a PowerPoint on the screen behind me? How many of you notice that? Okay, those of you who don't, I'm sorry. I guess we could make the screen bigger. Um, how many of you like the PowerPoint? Raise your hands. How many of you don't like the PowerPoint? Don't worry, you're not going to make me mad. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You don't like the PowerPoint. So I'm the only one raising my hand. I don't like the PowerPoint. In sermon prep, this is my least favorite part of sermon prep. And it's partly because I am technologically challenged. You're like, that's obvious. Look at your slides. I grew up in the 70s and 80s where if you were technologically advanced, you had a CD player or an electric typewriter. I learned to type. It wasn't keyboarding back in my day. It was typing class. And so I am technologically challenged. That's why you'll see there aren't many frills in the PowerPoint presentation. But I do hope that it's a help in helping you follow along in the flow of thought of the text we're in. You say, what's the spiritual significance of this? There isn't any, all right? Because my time hasn't started yet. (laughs) We've been working our way through Mark's gospel. Verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, PowerPoint slide by PowerPoint slide. And this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to go back and I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Now, we covered verses 17 through 23, excuse me, verse 22 last week, but it's the setup for what I'm going to preach on this morning from verses 23 through 31. You follow along in your copies of God's Word, please. Verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, But you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come 
eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of our God. Life is comprised of a series of value judgments. Nearly every decision we make every day is driven by what we believe to be the more valuable option. Psychologists actually tell us that that's something we do 35,000 times each day. And you're like, no wonder I'm so tired all the time. 35,000 decisions each day. Value judgments. And on one day in 1997, one of those 35,000 decisions was one of the worst value judgments I have ever made. With our oldest daughter, Lizzie, on the way, I decided to trade in our Jeep Cherokee for an Eagle Premier. Yeah, I heard that. Ooh. Now, you probably have never heard of the Eagle Premier, and there is good reason for that. They were of such poor quality that production was halted after just five model years, and we were stuck with one. And in 1997, we sank nearly $3,000 into that car. And that was the very same year that Amazon stock went public. You probably know where this is going. Because if I would have invested that nearly $3,000 in Amazon stock, it would be worth over $5 million today. Now pray for me, because Joanna hasn't heard that till just now. <laughs> pray for me today, tomorrow, all week, the rest of my life. If only I could have seen into the future and made that value judgment in light of what was coming, and that's this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He walks away from an even greater opportunity than I had in 1997, because what's at stake for him isn't just his wealth but his life, eternal life. He's coming to the right person. He's coming to Jesus. He's doing the right thing. He's bowing before Jesus. He's asking Jesus the right question. How can I have eternal life? But when Jesus tells him that all the good things he's done and all the lots of stuff he's acquired can't earn him eternal life, he walks away from Jesus. Distraught, discouraged. He can't bring himself to let it all go to follow Jesus. But the issue here isn't that he has stuff. The issue here is that his stuff has him. Money is his master. Gold is his God. Stuff is his savior. And so he leaves Jesus and eternal life behind. It's a shockingly Foolish value judgment. And verses 23 through 31 are the aftermath to that scene. The aftermath to that decision. And now Jesus is going to unpack the big idea that the cost of following Jesus is worth it all in this life and in the life to come. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that 
Because if you do, it's going to radically affect everything about you. It's going to affect what you love and what you value, including your stuff and your money. Now, I realize that we have a growing number of new people here at Bethel, and let me just say we love having you, and we're thankful that you're here, but maybe you're thinking, wow, you know, this is my third week here, and we're already talking about money. Well, let me give you a little perspective, because in my three-plus years here, this is the second sermon I've preached where money is a major topic. And that's because almost all of our preaching here is through books of the Bible. It's what we call expositional preaching, where the biblical text sets the agenda for the sermon. So I want you to know, I didn't wake up this past Monday morning wondering what I'm going to be preaching on today. I knew what was coming. I knew it was going to be verses 23 through 31 because that's what comes next in the text. And so when money is what comes next in the text... Money is what's on the menu. But please don't misunderstand. Because this isn't a sermon that is targeting your wallet. It's a sermon that's targeting your heart. It's what we read earlier from Matthew 6, verse 21 in our Scripture reading where Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your heart is tethered to your wallet. You want to know what you love and value? Just follow the money. And that's why when this rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, Jesus looks around at the crowd and he says to his disciples, look, look and see how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, wealth is inherently dangerous because it keeps you, it can keep you from entering God's kingdom. And when Jesus says this, instantly the disciples' jaws drop and their chins hit the ground. Because as I said last week, in Bible times, wealth was a billboard that proclaimed to the world that God liked you a lot. That you were a religious insider. Back then, people drew a straight line from the amount you had in your bank account to your goodness and your morals. After all, good things happen to good people, right? But Jesus here turns that conventional wisdom upside down and inside out. And that's why the disciples are doing a double take here. They're thinking, well, hold on, Jesus. Wait a minute. So, so rich people don't go to heaven you're telling us that, that things in God's kingdom work differently than they do in this world's kingdom? They're stunned. They're dazed. They're amazed. It's like when we as parents tell our kids to make their bed and clean their room. And so they just throw their sheets and their blanket and their pillow on top of the bed and they toss their dirty clothes under the bed and they pile everything else in the closet and slam the door. And then they say, Mom and Dad, I'm done. It's all clean. And you walk into the room and you see the bed. And because you weren't born yesterday, you know to look under the bed. 
and in the closet, and you give them a one-word answer. Nope. That's these disciples. They're stunned. They're amazed. They're dazed. They're struggling to make sense of it all. That's why Jesus doesn't refer to them as his guys or his bros or his fellas. He refers to them, notice, as children. His children. I love that. Jesus knows that he's just rocked their world with what he said. And so he's going to love them and be patient with them by clarifying his words for them. Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So let me paint you a picture so that you can get it. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is the kind of statement the Bible scholars love to obsess over. This is the kind of statement that some theologians come up with some real creative, over-the-top interpretations like this one. They say that the eye of the needle was the nickname for a small after-hours gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and the only way that a camel could get through it was by getting down on his knees, and that that's a picture of what Jesus has just asked the rich young ruler to do here, to bow before him. Now, as we say in preacher talk... That'll preach, but I don't think that's what Jesus means. I think Jesus means what he says and says what he means because a camel would have been the largest animal these guys would have been familiar with, and the eye of a needle would have been the tiniest space they would have been familiar with. And so Jesus is saying what he seems to be saying. He's saying it is more difficult for a rich person to enter God's kingdom than it is to stuff a camel through the eye of a real needle. And suddenly the disciples get it. The light bulb goes on in their heads. And that's why they aren't just amazed anymore. They're exceedingly astonished. They're blown away. It's like when mom and dad walk into their child's bedroom and the bed is made and the closet's clean and everything's in place. Mom and dad almost pass out. They're blown away. They're beside themselves. That's the disciples now. And Jesus says, for the wealthy person, salvation isn't just humanly difficult. It's humanly impossible. Nobody can earn their way or buy their way or pay their way into God's good graces. Hard work and wealth earn us or win us no eternity points with God. The good that we've done, the stuff we've acquired, doesn't win us favor with God. With God. You know why? Because of what First Chronicles 29 verse 12 says. Riches come from Him. Honor comes from Him. He rules over all. It's in His hand, our power and might. And in His hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And so listen, without Him, none of us could be rich. So none of us would be rich. And so before Him, none of us is rich. Spiritually, 
were dirt poor, were destitute. And the disciples get that. And so they say, okay, Jesus. But if it's humanly impossible for even the wealthy to get into God's kingdom, then who in the world can be saved? Who in the world can make it in? And Jesus looks at them. Now, I would ask you to underline or circle that word looks because it's the very same form of the word that's used back in verse 21 where Jesus is interacting with that rich young ruler when he looks at him and loves him. It's a prolonged form of the word, which means that Jesus doesn't just glance at his disciples. He locks eyes with them. He's saying with his eyes what we as parents say to our kids. When I'm talking to you, look at me like I'm looking at you so I know that you're hearing what I'm saying. And looking at them, Jesus says to them, with man, it's impossible to be saved, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What you can't do, He can. In salvation, He does all the work because He can stuff that camel through the eye of that needle and bring you into His kingdom. Now, let's just take a moment and let's take a step back from this scene because maybe you're thinking, you know, PK, this is all so interesting At least I hope that's what you're thinking. At least I hope that's what you're thinking. A few more chuckles. But maybe you're thinking, this text doesn't really apply to me because I'm not wealthy. I'm a middle-class American. I don't live in Winnetka or Highland Park or even Naperville. I live in Schaumburg or Streamwood or Elgin. Okay, I hear you. So let's broaden our perspective. Let's think bigger. Let's think about how we compare globally. Because the global median income is $1,225. Not weekly, not monthly, annually. Are you wealthy? Yes, we are. So this isn't just about a rich young ruler. This is about us. Although wealth gives us a social and cultural and global advantage, it never gives us a spiritual or eternal advantage. You know why? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, wealth promotes self-reliance. Money is a form of power that tends to replace our need for God. In fact, that's the very parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about a farmer A farmer who's harvested a bumper crop. And the bumper crop is so great that he has to build new massive barns to store that crop. It all looks so good and it feels so good. And so he sits back and he puts up his feet and he says to himself, I have ample goods laid up for many years of good. 
relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And that very night, God comes to him and says, you fool, because tonight your soul is required of you. Tonight you are going to die. And so when you die, whose then will all this stuff be? You see, money makes you feel like you're in control. Money makes you feel like you're a God. You can do what you want. You can be who you want. You can get what you want. It's what that great theologian Chris Rock has said. Some of you got it. He says this, wealth is not about having a lot of money. It's about having a lot of options. And when you have a lot of options, you feel like you have the tiger by the tail. But the tiger may have you by the tail because secondly, wealth can be addictive. Wealth can be addictive. The more you have, the less you feel you have. That's a proven fact. Because when your income increases, your lifestyle tends to follow. So you don't feel wealthy because your expenses have increased with your income. You buy a bigger house and a nicer car and you eat at the upscale restaurants. And then you notice that all your neighbors in your nice neighborhood have an in-ground pool and a boat and a vacation home. And so you need all of that. And you feel deprived until you get all of that. That's what we call an addiction. Money can be a drug. The more you have, the more you crave. And the more you crave, the more you need to get that next, next hit or that next high. And so you'll never give any of your money away. You need it too badly. It's a fact, statistically, that the more money people have, the less percentage they give away. And that demonstrates that wealth isn't just addictive. Number three, wealth can enslave you. The more you have, the harder you have to work at keeping it, maintaining it, and growing it. You're keeping up with the market trends daily. You check your Vanguard and Fidelity apps multiple times a day. You fall asleep watching Bloomberg or CNBC or Fox Business. You, you think you're maintaining control of your money, but really your money's gaining control over you. You see, money doesn't want to serve you. It wants to own you and master you. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. 
And that's why Jesus tells this rich young ruler to go and sell all that he has and give to the poor, and then he will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, it's impossible to enter God's kingdom bringing my own assets, trusting in who I am and what I have and what I've done. But when we open our hands and lay aside our assets and trust only in Jesus and His eternal assets, then the door to God's kingdom swings wide open and Jesus brings us into the kingdom by His grace alone. That's why Jesus dies on the cross alone. It's 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous one, the holy one, the sinless one, in the place of unrighteous, sinful, unholy ones. Why? Get this. So that He might bring us to God. That's why He has to be put to death in the the flesh, but made alive through His resurrection in the Spirit. You believe that? Do you believe that your assets here are not assets there? Do you believe that Jesus went without assets here to win us assets there? Have you come into God's kingdom, God's way? His way is the only way. And the only way is the Jesus way. That's why Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you come to Jesus? In John chapter 3, there is another ruler. His name is Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus asking the very same question the rich young ruler asks here. How can I get into God's kingdom? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, it's impossible for me to be born again. And Jesus says, yes, that's the point. With you, it's impossible. But with God, it's not impossible. So I say to you this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus, be born again. You say, but it's impossible. And I say, yes, be born again. You say, it's impossible. I say, yes, be born again. Do it. You say, how? It's impossible. Yes, it is for you. But it isn't for God and for Jesus to bring you. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Believe. Believe. Will you believe? Will you enter God's kingdom God's way? Now, Entering God's kingdom, God's way, by trusting in Jesus alone isn't the end of the story because it isn't the end of this text. There's more here. 
Because, listen, the same grace that brings you into the kingdom radically changes how you view the kingdom. It radically changes how you view your time and your money and your life. The same grace enables you to relinquish control over all that you have and all that you are. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that's why in verse 28, Peter says this. I love it. I love that Peter's willing to open his mouth because so many of us can identify with him, right? And, Jesus, and Peter says, Jesus, Jesus, look, we have nothing. We've left everything to follow you. We've done what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. We've left, we've left homes and family and our fishing boats behind. We've come to you empty-handed. We have nothing left but you. So we're good, right, Jesus? <laughs> we're good, right, Jesus? Please tell me we're good. And it's as if Jesus says, Peter, don't get the cart before the horse. Just remember that you did not earn eternal life because of what you left behind. But the eternal life you've been given has enabled you to leave it all behind. And I want you to know, Peter, that following me is eternally worthwhile. So Peter, write this down. Make a little note. Take it to the bank. Truly I say to you, there is no one, not just you, Peter, but no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and even persecution because to suffer for my sake is a blessing. But that's not all, Peter. There's more than just the blessings in this life. There are the blessings of eternal life. And so I want you to know that many who appear to be top dog in this life and in this culture will be last in the life to come. And those who seem to be bottom dog in this life will be first in the life to come. So yes, Peter, yes, it is worth it all. Now, this isn't Jesus teaching some kind of veiled prosperity gospel. He isn't saying that if you follow me, you'll be rich. And by the way, I'm not sure that my definition of riches is having a hundred mothers and a hundred brothers. I'm fine with one mom and two brothers. But Jesus is saying that in following him, we get something bigger and better than financial wealth. We get a new family. A church family. I'm not following Jesus alone, and neither are you. You've got me, and I've got you. You say, well, what about the houses and lands that are promised here? Well, let me ask you. If we ever had an ice storm here, and you and your family lost power for days, you know, you could come to our home, to our plot of land, 
And that as you walk in our door, we would say, Mikasa es su casa. Our house is your house. That's lands. That's houses. The love and encouragement and relationship that we share together in Christ is priceless. Because we're sons and daughters in a family where our Father loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. He will care for our needs, often using one another to meet those needs. And that's something we learn not in the easy times, but in the hard times, in the suffering, even when that suffering leads to death. And by the way, for Peter, it will. But even in death, we'll have life with Jesus. Forever. And so every sacrifice we make in following Jesus is worth it always. It's what a missionary named Jim Elliott once said before he was killed by the very people he was trying to win to Jesus. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot lose. To No, no, no. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. You see, when it comes to your money... You can't take it with you. But you can send it into God's kingdom ahead of you. You can invest in eternity by giving your money to God's work. And the best way to do that is to give in the local church. Now this isn't about fundraising. It's about discipleship. It's about a room full of people who are all in on following Jesus as our treasure. And so that's going to impact our wallet. So maybe you're wondering, well, how much should I give? How much does God want me to give? Because he, Jesus asked the rich young ruler here to give it all, to go and sell all that he has and then come and follow him. Well, there are many times in the Bible where God says, Relinquish control. And when you do, I'll let you keep 90%. Just give me your first 10%. So many places in the Bible we read that. And that's the starting point, 10%. But it isn't the finish line because we read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that God tells us to give in response to His grace. So as He's been generous to us, we're to be generous with Him. Not to repay Him but to love him and value him and worship him. Now, here at Bethel, you'll notice that we don't pass offering plates to collect the offering. And that's because we don't want guests to feel obligated to give or feel guilty when they can't give when the offering plate is passed to them. We don't want to manipulate or pressure anyone into giving. And because this is a rather large auditorium, have you noticed that? This is a rather large auditorium, and there are some of you who sit alone up in the balcony or alone right down here on the wings. 
And we don't want an usher to have to walk all the way over to you, sitting alone, and hold out the offering plate in front of you, waiting for you to put something in. God wants our giving to be a willing, joyful, sacrificial response to His grace. And so you can give through our church website, you can give through our church app, you can place our, your offering in one of the offering boxes along our back wall. You can even do, do it the old-fashioned way. You can mail it to the church and we'll receive it. There is no biblical command dictating how we collect the offering, but there are a lot of biblical commands that we give an offering. Not because God needs our money, but because in giving an offering, you are sending your money ahead of you into God's kingdom where it makes an eternal impact. Just look at this picture that was taken on Friday. Now, you may think this picture is staged, that this is a setup, but it isn't. Because as I was putting the final touches on this sermon on Friday afternoon, I didn't know how I was going to conclude it. And then my wife Joanna, via Facebook Messenger, sends me this picture. It's a picture of a Ukrainian boy in a classroom in this very facility at Schaumburg Christian School. He's in kindergarten. Joanna is a teacher's aide in one of our kindergarten classes on Fridays. And she is working with this young Ukrainian boy, this kindergartner, who is learning to read his Ukrainian Bible. And the verse he's reading, John 3, 16. When we give, this is what we're giving to. When we give, we are believing what Jesus promises here, that He will provide for us. He will sustain us all the way to heaven where we'll meet boys like this one and girls and moms and dads and men and women from all over the world who've been eternally impacted by the financial sacrifices we've made in the ministry here at Bethel. You believe that? Because that's true wealth. That's eternal wealth. We are not fools to give what we cannot keep, to gain what we cannot lose. The cost of following Jesus really is worth it all in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Father, may you take your word and accomplish your eternal purposes in the hearts of these people and my heart too. May you receive the glory now in not just how we have heard your word, but now how we respond to your word. And so if you're here this morning and you've never come into God's kingdom, God's way, you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus and his assets alone, would you right now 
right where you are. Turn to Jesus. Would you do the impossible and trade in your assets for his? And you will find the door to God's eternal kingdom swing wide open for you. And God will stuff that camel through the eye of that needle and you will be saved. And then follower of Jesus, are you truly relinquishing on a regular and daily basis control of all that you are and all that you have? Do you realize it all belongs to him? And are you investing in eternity by sending your money ahead of you into God's eternal kingdom? God, help us to be generous, willing, sacrificial givers for his glory. And in the name of his Son, amen.